Welcome to Wellspring Worship Center this morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, <laughs> some of you may be aware that this is this is going to be a hard service, and that is okay. Um, I'm going to ask Donna, and I'm going to ask the uh, the deacons and elders of the church to come forward. And I recognize this is this is a strange thing. Uh, so many of us have been part of this church for different amounts of times in different ways. Some of us have been invested here for decades or generations. Some of us have only been here for a few weeks even. And so naturally what we're sharing is going to affect different people in different ways. And, and, and that's okay. And we're, we're going to keep on talking in this way. Um, just to mention that this isn't all of our deacons and elders. There's a few others that have uh, that were unable to attend this morning, but uh, we come to you uh, with humble hearts uh, this morning. On Thursday, July 14th, via local news media outlets, Wellspring leadership learned of the arrest of two former members of Banfield Memorial Church, the previous name of our church. The two were arrested on multiple charges of sexual assault of teens, dating back about 30 years. The one accused held a position as a youth pastor and a youth leader at Banfield at the time, and the victims that have come forward attended the church. Current Wellspring leadership is shaken and heartbroken with this news. Pastor James and the deacons and elders were not aware of these issues of abuse within our fellowship. We appreciate the courage of those that have come forward to report their experiences, and we grieve with them. Wellspring leadership will do everything we can to cooperate with any investigation that may be forthcoming. If you have been a victim of abuse, we encourage you to speak to the police. We want you to know that your voices will be heard and trusted. We stand alongside Jesus with those who have been abused and beg his forgiveness for anything church leadership did or did not do that led to this tragic situation where vulnerable people within the congregation were harmed. For almost 20 years now, the church has had a plan to protect and has followed recommended safeguards to protect vulnerable congregants in our care. Please be assured that we will take this opportunity to review these policies, procedures, and safeguards, and put anything further in place that we feel would help to protect our children and youth as they participate in church-led activities. If this news triggers painful memories for you for any reason, we encourage and welcome you to reach out to Pastor James or any of the deacons or elders. We will stand alongside you, pray with you, and direct you to personal counseling services as required. Within the next couple of weeks, we will be holding an evening of prayer particular to this situation. The day and time will be announced soon. All will be welcome to join Pastor James and the deacons and elders as we petition God for his hand of healing for the hurting and also for wisdom and direction as we earnestly desire to follow his steps as we move forward as a community of faith. We are going to have two readings today. The first is from Matthew 18, starting at verse 1. 
that says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of those little ones who believe in me to stumble into sin, it will be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. And then we're going to go for just a few pages to Matthew 27, beginning at halfway through verse 26, which is, uh, sorry, Matthew 27, verse 26. It says this. This is Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him. They took his staff and struck him over the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning and everywhere and in all things. We see your heart and know your heart and do all that we can to reveal your heart to a world that so desperately needs it revealed. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Before uh, I say anything today, before I go anywhere today, I need to issue a pretty serious content warning for uh, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. This is hard. This is going to be hard for all of us, and for some of us it might be unhealthy. So please know it's safe to get up and leave at any time. It's okay. If you would like prayer, that's something that we can do. If you want some time alone, that's okay as well. Everyone here has their own story. Everyone here has their own experiences. And we're all affected differently by what's been shared today and what I'm going to share today as well. Whatever feelings, emotions, and hurts that brings up, those are valid. I'm, I'm going to begin this with one apology and one thing for which I will make no apologies. I'll do the apology first. Uh, for the past few months, 
more and more abuse cases throughout Canada have been revealed as victims have bravely come forward. And it had been my intention to teach a bit on this on a Sunday morning, on the spiritual side of things and the practical side of things, but of course, <laughs> elevating the words of Jesus who hurts with the hurting and weeps with the weeping. And, and I should have done that sooner so that we'd had a, a little bit of resilience or maybe some way, some understanding of how to process that news, process news of this nature. Uh, but I had naively thought uh, that this wasn't part of Wellspring's history. And so I didn't respond with the urgency that I should have. And I have let you down in not preparing you, and I am very sorry for that. The, the second piece, before we get to the sermon, but hopefully reveals a bit of my heart and my story. Um, we, we should always be wary of preachers who make themselves the hero. So it is, it's with some reluctance I share this, I suppose. Uh, in 2008, I had been working as a youth pastor right out of university for a few months, and some women and some youths came forward to tell me that they had been abused by a minister in training. And I don't want to go into the details of that because it distracts from the cause of our grief today. Uh, but I will say that, that their suffering was real, uh, and I did all that I could to make that suffering and that pain and that injustice know to the church structure and hierarchy at the time. And uh, I didn't let it go, and I fought and fought to make sure that those brilliant and brave women received the justice that they deserved, and the church failed them. And, and a report was commissioned uh, about what had happened uh, by, by the church, the, the, the denomination, about what had happened, and in this report there was a section on me. And their conclusion on their section on me said, James Scholl has a young man's passion for justice and a desire for things to be done right without the real world experience to know that life is a little more complicated than that. And I said at the time, and I will say now, that if that is something that you can carve on my tombstone, then I believe that I have lived the kind of life I want to live. Life is not more complicated than that. Things should be done right, and justice will roll. As I said, uh, so many of us will be coming at this with different emotions today. But, but I think all of us feel a sense of loss. Like a loss that this church wasn't what it was supposed to be. But perhaps it brings up emotions of loss because of the way that abuses shaped your own life or the lives of people that you love. People that you care about. And... And I didn't know what to say or do. And, and during one of my sleepless nights, I was like, do I just cover myself in sackcloth and ashes? Like, does that, does that convey the, the nature of this grief and sorrow and loss that I feel? Ah. 
but but I don't really want this to be about me. I want this to be about those who have suffered and about Jesus. So that's that's what I'm going to try and do. And and I was thinking about these five stages of of loss. You know, those five stages: denial and anger and bargaining and grief and acceptance. And today there will be no denials. And today there will be no bargaining. And today we are not yet ready to move to a place of acceptance. People who work in the reconciliation field will tell us that there can be no acceptance until there is one agreed story in the light for all of us to see. And we humbly and expectantly wait that day. So that, that leaves us with two. <laughs> it leaves us with grief and it leaves us with anger. And from my conversations over the last two days, those are two overwhelming feelings, two overwhelming emotions that many of us are currently feeling. <laughs> let's, let's start with anger. <laughs> Because people ask me quite often, James, you don't preach on God being angry very much. Why don't you preach more about wrath and vengeance and God being angry? That's that's the kind of church we we grew up in. And and the simple answer is that I, I don't think it's particularly helpful to preach about God being angry. I think the number of people that have been driven away from a relationship with Jesus because of this image of an angry God who's angry with them is, is much greater than the number of people that have been drawn closer to relationship with Jesus because of a God who is angry with them. And often <laughs> that angry God is spoken of in such a way that the church ceases to be a safe space for the same people that God's heart breaks for. God so often is presented as angry at whatever culture war Christians are currently on the losing side of, but I don't think that's the anger that is so often revealed in Scripture. God's heart is broken and his anger is kindled more than anything by injustice. And, and Jesus doesn't seem to get very angry very often. He does, but not too often. But he certainly never gets angry at the forgotten or the powerless or the abused. But Jesus does give us some insight as to his own fury at those who would harm the innocent in that passage that we read earlier. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it will be better to him to have a large millstone hung around their neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. One of the things we miss is that uh, in Jesus' culture, <laughs> the sea was this terrible and feared thing. Death by drowning at sea was the worst way that you could die. And while some Roman punishments included drowning, they were never meted out in Jewish communities because the punishment was just considered too cruel. And this is what Jesus looks like when he's angry, and this is the kind of thing that makes him angry. 
the idea that those who are unable to protect or defend themselves might be wounded or harmed by the actions or inactions of others deserved a greater punishment than his society could provide. And many of us are angry today, and that's okay. That's a very natural reaction to the harm that has been done. And there were those of us who are able to use that anger as fuel to make positive changes, to, to make sure that we do more and more to prevent harm to the vulnerable. And there will be those of us who are unable to do anything other than just to scream at the sky and cry at God about the injustice of it all. And, and that's okay too, because when we do that, our cries join those same cries of God who has been screaming about the injustice of this for decades now. Who's been agonized by the cruelty. But in all of this, let's make sure that we make space for the voices of those who have been most directly harmed by abuse. This injustice should make us angry. But to fix injustice, we have to name injustice. We need the victim's stories to be central because we need to be angry about the right thing. Not angry that this has been exposed, but angry that the abuse has happened. Angry with God and alongside God that innocence has been stolen and the power has been abused. So be angry, but Make sure it's the victim's stories that we keep central at all times. And, and so the other, the other emotion I'm left with is grief. Like so much grief. And I, I don't know what to do with that grief other than bring it to the, the ruined body of the crucified Jesus. Let me read that passage again. After flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. I, I want to say this again now. Uh, this next part is going to be really hard to listen to. And it's okay if you need to remove yourself from this space because for the rest of this sermon, I'm going to be talking about Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse. That idea may be new to some of us. It might feel ridiculous or impossible or even blasphemous. But the more that we study these gospel accounts, the more that we study scripture, the more it's so clearly the case 
So often we ignore what's in plain sight because it's simply too awful to embrace. But, but, but here it is, the Romans stripped Jesus in front of the whole cohort. That's 400 to 500 soldiers. And after the mock coronation, they strip him again. And at the crucifixion, at the foot of the cross, he would have been stripped a third time. The whole point of crucifixion was to shame and humiliate its victims. And victims are crucified naked for that reason. And there's nothing more shameful for a Jewish man to have to display his naked body to the multitudes as they sneered and as they spat. And yet, in our minds and in our statues and in our artwork, Jesus remains covered. It's not what scripture says. But in our artwork, Jesus remains with some kind of loincloth, saving his dignity, keeping his dignity intact whilst the truth stays unintact. Several years ago, uh, an artist who, who produced work of a naked, crucified Jesus actually had it destroyed by someone saying, we won't turn the Bible into a nudist colony. But let's be clear, the stripping of Jesus was abuse of a highly sexual nature. It's designed to degrade and to dehumanize, and yet we don't talk about this aspect of the crucifixion. Our series has been called, Who is Jesus? And we've been asking who Jesus spends time with and the kind of things that Jesus does and the things that happen to him. And, and the who is Jesus this week is, he's, he's one, uh, one who is abused. And I think we struggle with this because there's something safer about worshipping someone, especially worshipping a man who's endured torture and who's endured death. But worshipping a man who's endured sexual abuse is different. Admitting that Jesus is exposed and vulnerable and powerless is something that we don't want to talk about. And this isn't to conflate Jesus' sexual abuse with the many different ways in which victims of sexual abuse have suffered over the years. But Jesus' stripping was done to humiliate the powerless by the powerful. It was for the powerful to take something from the powerless that wasn't theirs to take. Recognizing this as abuse matters. Responding to this as abuse matters. And doing so helps us remember that sexual abuse does not always look the same. It's not always one thing happening to certain people. And for so long, the reactions of society and the church at large to victims have not been the same words and reactions that we would have offered the crucified Jesus. We've asked the wrong questions. We have blamed the wrong people. And it's my hope that seeing Jesus as a victim of abuse 
this way helps us better understand victims of abuse. Uh, Dina, who's a, a nun who is a victim and survivor of sexual abuse, had, had this to say as she was learning about Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse. She said, it's so strange that Jesus has not been considered a victim of sexual abuse. I think it's because we have this whole victim-blaming culture and the idea that victims of sexual abuse have actually done something to provoke it. Picturing Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse makes it entirely clear that the victim is innocent. The innocent Jesus who's stripped and shamed is our testimony that victims and survivors of abuse are not to blame for the cruelties that have visited upon them. And so when we ask the wrong questions, we need to remember that we will be asking them to Jesus too. If we ask, what are they wearing? Make sure you say it first to the crucified Jesus. If we want to ask, what have they said to deserve this, then we need to be willing to say it first to the crucified Jesus. And if we want to ask, why does this need to be so public? Why do, why do people need to know? Why do we need to talk about it? There's a lot of reasons. But one of them is that Jesus suffered that public humiliation too, rather than some hidden quiet death. And it's evidence that God sees and doesn't turn away from victims of abuse. Christ has endured with the victims and understands their shame. He understands their loss. He understands the betrayal. And God bears witness, and so must we. I'm nearly done. I, I don't know. I don't get to wrap this up in a neat little bow this time. I don't know what a, what a happy ending looks like or an honoring ending looks like or the right ending. Because we don't even, we don't even know the, the, the depth of the damage yet. We, we can't move on until there is that shared story. Everything is too fresh and too raw, and, and people are hurting too badly. But what I can offer is that if you're hurting, that we see you, we hear you, and we all fall at the feet of the naked, tortured Jesus who knows exactly what it means to be abused, to be humiliated, to be called a liar, to be blamed for the cruel actions of others. And to the victims of abuse, know that God is not embarrassed by your story. Jesus is not afraid to hear you. I don't, I don't know what it's like to have to share your story. But Jesus does. Jesus has said that 
Whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. Jesus understands what it is like to be powerless, to be overlooked, to be betrayed. Jesus elevates those people and he identifies with those people. And Jesus is there waiting always. Let's pray. Well, we pray that in this and in all things, we can look to you. We pray that we can look to you and we can truly see you. The beauty and the majesty, but the pain and the suffering too. Lord, we pray, we beg <laughs> that we can be better aligned with your kingdom, with your way. And Lord, we do pray your comfort, your love over those who have been so hurt. We pray that we can know and share the comfort that comes only from you. Help us show the world that there is nothing to be ashamed of. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.